Hi, I'm Tom Field, Vice President of Editorial with Information Security Media Group. I'm talking today about leading cybersecurity out of medieval times. It's my pleasure to be speaking with Tom Burns. He's the founder and CEO of ThreatStop. Tom, thanks so much for joining me today. Tom, thanks for having me. So you and I have had some conversations in in advance of talking today, and I want to to get you to lay out for me why you believe that cybersecurity is currently stuck in medieval times. Well, it's pretty simple. Uh, In medieval times, everybody had their castle and their private army and their client village, right? You had the lord in his castle, and he controlled the army, and the army extracted rents or whatever from the little village, and every little village had its own castle, and some were stronger than others, and some were able to protect better than others. The castles didn't really collaborate. In fact, if anything, they competed with each other. They certainly didn't share a lot of resources to defend each other. And so you had bands of barbarians roving the countryside who would go to one keep or one village, attack it, and they might succeed or not. If they succeeded, they hung out there for a bit until there was nothing left, and then they went down the the road. If they didn't succeed, they went on to the next place. And in most cases, they were able to find a weak point to attack. And that's exactly the sort of place we're in right now. People don't share information. People aren't sharing their defenses. Everybody has to go build their own private army. They're duplicating the exact same thing over and over and over again, privately building their own intelligence systems, it's very similar to the Middle Ages before the emergence of nation states, um, armies, and the police force. So if I stay with your analogy, Tom, it strikes me that with the right leadership, organizations could go toward enlightenment. And if they go the wrong way, they're going to head into the Dark Ages. What's the difference between going to enlightenment or the Dark Ages? Well, uh, going to the Dark Ages first would be the same as what happened at the end of the Roman Empire. You'll see a decrease in the economy, etc., right? The, the original Internet was a lot like Pax Romana. Everybody was able to move around, exchange information. There were public markets. People lived in the valleys. They didn't have fortifications. They had nice villas or at least a decent house. And when you went to the Middle Ages, because everybody had to go live in the hillsides and live in fortifications, the overall exchange of information, goods, etc., dropped the ability to learn and share information by learning went away. And so you had the Dark Ages because the open economy that existed in peaceful times was replaced by a balkanization, which led to a reduction in the economy and a reduction in intellectual stimulation. The same thing would happen in the Internet if people decide to close themselves off. You're already hearing lots of clamor. Uh, The Chinese are sort of leading this, I can for walled gardens and for individual closed-off internets and different lanes of the internet depending on who you are. That will undermine the thing that made the internet great, which is that anybody can talk to anybody and create, create any services that they want and share information back and forth with each other in commerce. The way to avoid that is to leverage the strength of the internet. The same thing that made e-commerce possible and that made social media possible and all that wonderful sharing information we do that using the Internet, we should be doing to protect ourselves. It's not like there aren't enough people out there who do know what's going on, who's doing it, what infrastructure they're using. It's getting that out to people in a timely manner so they can protect themselves. So if I get attacked, I'm pretty well defended, right, because it's what I do for a living and have been doing since I was in the Army. I can do a pretty good job protecting myself. And in so doing, 
I figure out who's doing it and what infrastructure they're using. Well, if I just do that for myself, they'll just go attack somebody else who may not be as well defended. But if I were to take the information I gleaned from defending myself and shared it with everybody else, then they would all already be able to protect themselves against this new, new actor or new threat before they even went after them. And if everybody did that, then you would have something much more similar to the modern world, where a criminal commits a couple of crimes, people call it, call him out on the, the police, and they get arrested. Or someone goes to a madrasa in Pakistan, and they wind up on a no-fly list, so they can't get on a plane. Or someone is busily posting on social media about jihad, and we go and find them and stop them from attacking people. They don't, we don't always succeed, but believe it or not, we've succeeded a lot more times than we failed, because it's still news when this happens. Same thing in the Internet. If we were to gather the information and share it with each other about the attackers, then we would be able to defend ourselves much more effectively and maintain the openness of the Internet. So, Tom, talk to me a little bit about ThreatStop. Why is yours the right vendor in the right position to lead cybersecurity out of medieval times? Well, we started from the premise of information sharing. You're hearing a lot about it now in Congress, but we've actually come from a project that was founded by Johannes Ulrich at the Internet Storm Center called D-Shield. And D-Shield was based on the insight that if firewalls shared information with each other about what they blocked, that they would then protect each other against attacks that they may not already be blocking because that port's open on that firewall, but it's not open on the other one. So the guy trying to come in on the firewall where the port's closed notices that this guy's trying to attack a service that he doesn't have. So clearly, he's doing something bad. But this other firewall over here does have that service open. Well, if he knows to block that attacker, then even though the service is open, he'll be protected. That was the original insight. Later work was done under a grant by, from the National Science Foundation and the Army Reconnaissance Office at SRI by a guy named Phil Porras on this thing called the Cyber Threat Analytics Platform. And the paper that they published at Usenix in 2004 said, hey, this is very similar to how Google figures out what a web page is. Think of it as backlinks. So rather than what you say about yourself or about your IP address at the moment, what everybody else says about it is actually what it is. And so if you have this network of information sharing, and this started off as a science project, then you could protect systems. Now, I was using this science project to protect a system that was a database of tax returns. And one of the problems with this science project was, yeah, it got data really well. But putting that data into a firewall so it could be used was quite hard. And it's important to do it quickly because these things change very rapidly in the internet. That's the, the key missing piece. I figured out a way to do it using DNS, which is ubiquitous. The domain name system is how everything figures out what to connect to on the internet. IP addresses are the actual addresses used, but people and machines discover resources using DNS. I implemented this idea, got a patent on it, got a grant from the United States government to actually turn it into a distributed, closed-loop, collaborative network defense system. So we started off, the original science project was actually 10 years ago, with this whole concept of this is the way to do it. All the other systems that are out there and all the things that people are currently buying, by and large, are still stuck in the prior Castle, Mott, and Bailey mechanism. They're designed 
to give a given defender, whoever they may be, and hopefully they have lots of money to pay for these things, the best possible tools and defenses. So you can go out there and you can buy your uh, endpoint security and your antivirus and your intrusion detection system and your big inline sandboxing system like FireEye. And that's the equivalent of going out and hiring your own police force and getting a private army and buying some armored cars and you know getting a big old M1 Abrams tank for yourself. That's great if you're huge, and even then you're constantly spending money endlessly buying more and more equipment and having to integrate it and learn new interfaces. ThreatStop, on the other hand, takes what you already have and by putting it into this collaborative system makes it much smarter. And each additional customer or user of the system makes the whole system much smarter because the information that they use to run their reports to figure out what they blocked and what they might want to go clean up in their own network is fed back into the system to inform other people in the system what they need to defend against in real time and to tune what exactly is being blocked at any given moment. We don't get everything. We can't. No system is perfect. But we catch new things very early, and more importantly, as something propagates out, we figure it out much, much faster. And by disseminating the information about what to block very quickly, we get inside the decision loop. We're able to turn what currently happens, the, the malware authors and the nation-state actors have these botnet armies. These are bunches of computers all over the Internet that they have taken over that don't cost them anything. They're using your electricity. They're using your computer. They're using your network bandwidth to attack other people and to steal things from them. On the other hand, the defenders are constantly have to spend more and more and more money. But by turning that whole idea of collaboration and sharing information and rapidly disseminating the result of that information back on the attackers, we now get the benefit of society operating against a smaller number of bad actors. And you reach a certain point, if ThreatStop succeeds, that the critical mass will be so much larger that it's game over for them. Right now, the economics are on their side. But very rapidly, if we can get critical mass worldwide, the economics will turn to where it no longer becomes economically feasible to do things the way that they are doing now. And so while there still be crime, it'll be much more point. It'll be much more like it is in the real world where, yes, it exists, but the reality is the odds of any one person being a victim of a very serious crime in a modern society in their lifetime is actually relatively low. And that's because although criminals can and do attack people close to them, they get caught and then we take them out of society. Same thing would happen if we were blocking in real time the traffic that they were generating, regardless of where they were. The key thing is you have to be able to disseminate that information quickly because on the Internet, what they use can change very rapidly, although not as rapidly as you might think due to certain ways that the protocols are implemented. Well, Tom, that's great background on ThreatStop. Tell me a little bit about yourself now. Why are you the right leader at the right time to help lead this charge? I'm a silly guy who came up with it. I don't know. The real answer is uh, it's the culmination of my life's work. I was really, really into computers as a kid. And back then, 
it wasn't illegal to quote-unquote hack. Uh, if you wanted to use a system, you really kind of had to find someone else's because computers were very expensive and not very powerful. And so I learned about all the ways that these things worked. And then uh, as I grew into adulthood, I decided I wasn't going to be going around and, and breaking things. I wanted to learn how to fix them. And so I joined the United States Army and went into radio communications. Um, it was in the U.S. Army Signal Corps. Well, the Army Signal Corps was the phone company for the Army. And naturally, as the Army deployed data networks, they also deployed that using the Signal Corps. And so I got involved in, and this is actually how I wound up meeting Johannes, I got involved in U.S. military automation. Now, one of the things we realized very quickly after we put these tactical networks out there, that, wait a minute, we're running wars on data networks. And these data networks are out in the field in foreign countries, in some cases connected to foreign countries' telephone networks. We need to learn how to operate securely in an insecure environment. And you're talking, you know, Early to mid-90s, people were maybe beginning to deploy firewalls in the civilian sector, but we had real problems. We had classified information. We had the locations of various assets. We had flight plans, weather plans, troop strengths. We had how many, how many beans, bullets, and how much oil we had all going across this network. So we had to figure out how to secure it. And at the same time, we started realizing how this network allowed us to get inside the decision loop of our enemies. Because everything was networked, we could tell right away where a given enemy was and get it into the all-source intelligence cell where we could gather the information and very rapidly prioritize missions to go get them. And the first place that that was effective was in the Balkans. We were able to drastically tamp down the violence because no matter what the various militias did, all of a sudden they would have blue hats on top of them because we could react much quicker. Um, and you saw that uh, very clearly in the most recent conflicts where we were able to react very rapidly both in the main combat phase and also in the insurgency phases to what was going on. That same background, that same mentality, that same way of looking at things informs what I do at ThreatStop and led to the idea of get an all-source intelligence cell, get the information out there quickly and feed it back into the system as fast as you can. So, Tom, how is ThreatStop today helping customers really make this emergence from medieval cybersecurity and you know, for, for one last time with this, this analogy to stay out of the dark ages? Well, by deploying us now, they're able to take what they already have and protect themselves against what is a very rapidly growing cyber threat. You see it in news every day. And the other solutions that purport to solve it are very expensive in most cases, and they take quite a lot of effort to deploy. So they have to go through and they have to test them. They have to learn a new interface, etc. Whereas with ThreatStop, they can take their existing firewalls, their existing DNS servers, their existing routers and switches, and they can deploy our solution, since it's totally software as a service using the DNS, immediately. It typically takes, depending on the complexity of your system from an hour to maybe a day to deploy. That's the first thing. The second thing is, once they do that, they're now part of the solution. They're helping others learn who's doing the attacking and what infrastructure they're using. So we're already doing this in several very large companies. We have uh, financial services, financial services companies. We have hospitals. We have third-level education. Some of the early adopters of our 
service were unsurprisingly universities because they have to run in an open environment with information sharing. They can't put walled gardens and say, no, you can only run applications approved by IT, like in an enterprise. They have to let the students and faculty research. That's what they do. So the only thing they can do is take the more modern way of looking at things and use that to enforce and block the bad actors in the network. That worked. And other cases, so for example, we have a large hospital system where they have both the clinical systems, which can't be patched because the software is certified at a certain level. Those can get infected. Those can be under remote control. They can either cause problems with the diagnostics or they can exfiltrate personalized information to these attackers. But with threat stop running on that network, that doesn't happen. The systems can still operate. Also, they have patient wards where people are using Wi-Fi while they're in the hospital. They don't control those systems, those systems or whatever they brought from home. At least while they're in the hospital, they're not going to be infecting other people and they're not also going to be stealing money from people's bank accounts while they're there. So we're helping a lot of different customers in a lot of different ways to leapfrog the dark ages to the modern world where you have this real-time information sharing to go from the man-on-horseback warfare, which people currently have, all the way up to what the U.S. military is currently doing everywhere it's deployed and missing all the mess in the middle. So we're leapfrogging the phases of war. So, Tom, we're on the cusp of a new year. As we enter 2016, what are some of the advanced threats that really give you the most concern? Well, the funny thing is a lot of what gets called advanced threats really isn't. Um, (laughs) More often than not, it's a well-known existing vulnerability that hasn't been adequately patched or it's just people clicking on something they shouldn't. But what does concern me is that there are things like the supply chain for equipment that are not really well known. There have been quite a few things done where people have found that a significant number of phones that are being sold in Asia are in fact counterfeit uh, versions of what they claim to be. And if you're going to be selling a phone that says it's a Samsung but it isn't, what does it take to put Trojan firmware in there? We've already seen situations like that with Lenovo shipping spyware on uh, the IBM ThinkPads. And some of that has also been called out, uh, although it was a vulnerability, in some of the recent Dell security uh, system management tools. So that's what would really concern me, is that people buying equipment that's already pre-Trojaned, and that's already starting to happen, and you have to assume that the bad guys have taken notice that that works. And so that's what I, if I were them, that's what I'd do. I'd compromise the supply chain because then you don't have to worry about sending a spearfish to have someone click on it to download. And you don't have to worry about their antivirus because it's already installed on the device before the antivirus. It's built into the chip. Only way to get that is to get it when it tries to contact its master, which, by the way, is how threat stuff works. You make a good point, Tom. No one ever says that they got stopped by anything but an advanced threat, but they really aren't that sophisticated, are they? In most cases, no. I mean, for example, I, you know, I feel bad for the guys at Target, but there was nothing advanced about that. That was your commoner guard, and someone came in with a USB stick, and they, they were getting alerts. They just ignored them because there were too many of them. So you talked about supply chain. How do you see the cybersecurity industry having to evolve to protect the supply chain and to help organizations defend themselves against some of the threats that are most prevalent today? 
I think the most basic one is the one that people should always use in life, trust but verify. The problem is that people are generally not doing that. Uh, so, for example, you see a lot of these bugs in open source software that vendors blame for vulnerabilities in their equipment. Well, the bargain behind open source is if you use it, you contribute back. And the minimum of contributing back if you're going to use it in a commercial product is to test it, QA it, and if you find a bug, fix it, and then can commit that fix back. But instead, what companies are doing is they're just taking the stuff off the shelf and sticking it in their products without proper QA. So, of course, they're inheriting bugs. So I'd say that's the first thing. The second thing is know your supplier. I mean, don't go buying things that for the Internet equivalent of you're buying them off the back of a truck. I mean, if a deal is too good to be true, it's too good to be true. Tom, last question for you. As we look into 2016, how do you see ThreatStop evolving? Well, there are three principles we're going to be evolving along. Um, people, places, and product. So we have opened our research facility in Israel, and we will be adding security researchers in Israel. We're going to build out our sales and marketing team globally. We already have an office in Japan and a distributor in Dubai, we'll be adding an office in Europe, and we'll be adding global data centers. Um, so that's the, the people and places. The product, currently we have two basic lines of product, one that works on network infrastructure elements, which dynamically updates IP-based access control lists, and another that works on domain name servers that uh, allows you to filter and block based on the names and the infrastructure used under those. We're going to expand those forms of dissemination to include additional ways for people to handle traffic other than just blocking, but also to be able to do forwarding, deeper inspection, and layer additional services on top of that. We're going to expand the number of types of platforms that we work on. You probably just saw that we just did a press release with Microsoft about supporting Azure. There'll be a lot more in the cloud. We also will be evolving into more Internet of Things. We demonstrated at CES last year that we could work on the smallest little system on a chip. So that's used in small home Wi-Fi routers, um, in IP cameras, in travel routers. And we're actively seeking partners who can help us get into the more embedded system market. And uh, other than that, we're just going to continue doing what we've been doing. We've been growing, and we intend, intend to continue to grow. Tom, it's great insight, and I've enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much for your time and your thoughts today. Thank you, Tom. We've been talking about leading cybersecurity out of medieval times. I've been speaking with Tom Burns. He's the founder and CEO of ThreatStop. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tom Field. Thank you very much.